I really do thank you, and I just hope that uh, you'll find that this is worthwhile. Um, the issue of the existence of God is critical in today's society. Um, the atheist position has, of course, always been around, but it is now abused with a new, uh, shall I say, virulence, certainly a new forcefulness. Uh, the arguments, I think, are not very new, but the uh, force with which they're projected is. So um, we're debating, going to be looking at an, a, a very significant subject tonight because the conclusion that we come to will make a great difference to how we um, live our lives. Um, but over the centuries, um, particularly since the Enlightenment, um, the ground has been heavily trampled on. So I want to clear a little bit of debris out of the way uh, as I begin. By theism, um, I mean belief in a single and in some sense personal source of our world and of ourselves, which we call God. Atheism does not profess to be agnostic about God, it emphatically denies his existence. Um, the, the second prolegomenon, really, is that there is, and this is an important one, that there is no possibility of either proving or disproving God. The uh, learned journals, particularly uh, philosophical journals like Mind, used to be full of arguments pro and against this, and now everybody realises that it's a nonsense. Because to prove is to show that something follows certainly from a prior knowledge. And, of course, uh, by definition, there is no prior knowledge which is greater than the name we give to God, which is the source of all, um, all knowledge and for all the world. So you cannot have any deductive certainty about God because there is nothing higher than him from which he can be deduced. Um, and anyway, the God of the great religions is not a proposition to be debated, but a person to be encountered. And you don't prove persons, you meet them. Uh, to prove shows that it could not be otherwise, and that is a very final form of certainty. There are precious few things in life that you can actually conclusively prove, and uh, they're largely in the area of mathematics and philosophy and they are not the most interesting aspects of life. You cannot prove, for example, that your mother uh, or your spouse loves you. They may just be fattening you up, ready for the day when they slip arsenic into your coffee. You cannot actually prove that you are alive. Uh, David Hume tried to do that. He did a skeptical analysis of causation, mm -hmm. and then he wrote in his letters that he really needed to go out and have a very good dinner with his friends and forget what he had been uh, writing about all day. Um, proof only applies to these rarefied areas of mathematics and philosophy. For the rest, we have to work on good evidence. And there is very good evidence that we are alive. There is very good evidence that um, our nearest and dearest love us. And there is very good re evidence to believe in God. Notice that word believe. Many atheists argue that their position rests on solid facts and the case for God rests on infantile belief. The truth is that the atheist position is just as much based on faith as the theistic position is. The theist 
and the atheist have committed themselves to radically opposite worldviews. But in both cases, they have done so on evidence which seems good to them, but which they cannot conclusively demonstrate. Are you with me so far? Right. Now then, it's the time to begin to look at the evidence. I don't want to offer you theories tonight. I don't want to offer you impressions. I want to put before you seven signposts, seven factors which lead me to see good grounds for believing in the existence of God, the God who has transformed my life since I came to put my trust in him many years ago. Here's the first signpost. The signpost of the world that we inhabit. So far as we know, at present, this planet is the only place in the universe where there is conscious life. There may be other places, but we uh, don't know uh, them if they do exist. So we need to look at this place where there is conscious life, and what accounts for it. Most scientists have abandoned the steady-state theory of the origin of the universe in favour of the Big Bang. But we cannot help asking what lay behind the Big Bang. Sometimes scientists will call this an illicit question, but it's a question which we are driven to ask. What caused it? If the answer is in terms of atoms and molecules and DNA, you've got to press the question back further. How come that they possess such remarkable properties? Why should there be any atoms at all, rather than none? Why should DNA be the individual and unique key to everybody on Earth, to the great satisfaction of the police? We all know that nothing comes from nothing. Every finite thing is caused. Well, what caused this highly sophisticated world? You may say, and Richard Dawkins will say, evolution. But that will scarcely do. Even if the theory of evolution were universally accepted amongst scientists, you would still need to have an adequate starting point for the evolutionary process. Where did it begin? Darwin himself, at the outset of The Origin of Species, acknowledged God as that source. Nor can we escape from the necessity of God by saying, well, whole thing is sheer chance, really, it's just one of those things, that there is a world. If the world was due to chance, and I've never found anybody that has been able to answer this, maybe you can tonight, uh, and educate me on it, but if the world is due to chance, how come that cause and effect are built into it everywhere, at every turn? It is not rational to suppose that chance gives rise to cause and effect. And it's not very rational to suggest that the world which runs on cause and effect is itself uncaused. Thomas Huxley once said, the link between cause and effect is the chief article in the scientist's creed. Some of you will uh, remember the Oxford biologist Professor Sir Alistair Hardy. And I remember him saying, if you think hard enough, science drives you back to belief in a creator. Because science is based on the uniformity of nature. And if that comes from a random source, it's a very strange thing indeed. So there is, I think, the first signpost that we need to look at, the signpost of the world that we inhabit. Here's the second one. 
The signpost of design. Now, I know that's a controversial point, but I believe it's a strong one. At every level, the natural world seems to show evidence of design. Uh, think of the intricacy of the inner ear. Uh, think of the radar of a bat. Think of the focusing equipment of an eye. Think of the marvel of conception and birth. Think of the layer of air between the ice which enables the fish to stay alive. Or think of the navigational skill of migrating birds. Fresh from the nest, sometimes to a tiny island thousands of miles away that they have never seen and their parents have already flown on ahead. Or reflect on the perfect harmony of the laws of physics. At every point, there is evidence of design. And much modern science, not universally, but much modern science is recognising this as the anthropic principle. It means that had the circumstances of our physical world been even fractionally different, life could not have existed on this planet. It seems to be custom-made for human life. As the astrophysicist <coughs> Professor John Polkinghorne puts it, there is a very tight-knit series of constraints on the way our world must be in order that we should be here to observe it. Just think uh, of gravity as the most obvious of these forces. Um, if gravity was a little bit um, stronger, uh, we wouldn't be sitting here. We would be sucked under the carpet somewhere. If it was a little bit weaker, uh, your hairstyle would get a bit more like mine because we should be hitting the roof. It's just right for human beings. Even John Stuart Mill, who was no friend of Christianity, came to this conclusion towards the end of his life. He said, the argument from design is irresistible. Nature does testify to its creator. Now, of course, it might be argued that he lived before Darwin. He certainly did. Uh, Darwin never applied his arguments to cosmology, by the way. But um, Professor Paul Davis certainly lives after Darwin, and he's very much around still today. He's a distinguished New Zealand physicist who is not himself a Christian, but he has been driven to a theist position by his studies. And he writes, the well-defined laws of physics and definite cause and effect relationships reveal a level of order and symmetry in the universe that demands some sort of cosmic design. Einstein, too, spoke of his humble admiration of the illimitably superior spirit who reveals himself in the slight details which we can perceive with our frail minds. I rather like that coming from Einstein, don't you? Our frail minds. But there is, again, the same recognition of design. Physicists operate on the assumption of consistency and design in the universe. Very well, if there is design, where did it come from? Not from us. We don't lay down the laws of nature. We don't design the development of the fetus in the womb. It looks very much as if a designer is at work. So I still believe that the argument from design is weighty, and to say with the existentialist, atheist, Jean-Paul Sartre, 
that this world is not the product of intelligence. It meets our gaze as would a crumpled piece of paper in the rain. What is man but a little puddle of water whose freedom is death? To say that is to shut your eyes to one of the clearest indications that there is a creator God who has not left himself without witness in the world around us. So there's the second of my seven um, signposts. You can, of course, come back on these afterwards, and I hope you will. Here is the third one, the signposts of personality. The difference between a person and a thing, between a live person and a corpse, is fundamental. When Jean-Paul Sartre, in the quotation I've just given, denied that the world was made by intelligence, he was not only insulting his maker, as he admitted in a remarkable return to theism at the end of his life, but he was insulting his own powers of reasoning. He was saying, in effect, that there was no actual reason to believe what he was saying, for our minds, on his view, like the rest of us, are no more than cosmic flotsam and jetsam. It's very hard to see human personality that way. In fact, I will read you what Sartre said six weeks before he died. He said, as for me, I do not see myself as so much dust that happened in the world, but as a being that was expected, prefigured, called forth. In short, a being that could, it seems, have only come from a creator. And this recognition of a creative hand drives me back to God. A remarkable statement from one of the most distinguished atheist existentialists uh, in the last uh, 50, 60 years. So it's, it's very hard to see um, human personality um, as just uh, what Sartre was saying earlier on, uh, a crumpled piece of paper in the rain. Um, just the product of material forces and no more. The medical student could, no doubt, analyse his girlfriend into calcium and water and fat and so forth, not too much fat, of course, um, but he chooses her for other reasons. You cannot reduce love and emotions, resolve and decision-making into chemistry alone. That sort of reductionism will not satisfy us. Of course, some people are so reluctant to admit this that they resort to materialism, an extremely improbable philosophy, which gives no satisfactory account of human reason or of human love, nor of the disjunction between the mind and the body. We are not mere matter. But if we are not, the alternative is disturbing. It suggests that my personality cannot be explained simply in terms of its physical components alone. I am more than matter. But how could that be if there is no God? Does a river flow higher than its source? Of course it doesn't. Then how, on the atheist view, do we get human personality which transcends organic matter just out of the inorganic matter, which is the brute stuff of which our universe 
is exclusively composed. Stale stardust, how does that produce reason and personality? Can rationality and life and love and wonder spring ultimately from chance and matter? I think not. I believe that our life and our personhood point to our origin in an area that is at least personal. The God who created us as persons. That's not to say, of course, that God is restricted to personality like ours. He is beyond personality. But it is to say that the ultimate source of our being is not less than personal, however much it may transcend it. Paul Davis again. The physical species, Homo sapiens, may count for nothing. But the existence of mind in some planet of the universe is surely a fact of the most fundamental importance. This is no trivial detail. This is no minor byproduct of mindless, purposeless forces. We are truly meant to be here. The physical universe, he says, is put together with an ingenuity so astonishing that I cannot accept it merely as brute fact. There must be a deeper explanation. And what could that deeper explanation of mind and, per and personhood, as well as matter, what could that explanation be other than God? And that is what drives a man like Paul Davis, a top physicist, to becoming a theist. It's done the same with A.J. Eyre, who was a very distinguished um, opponent of Christianity uh, when I was doing philosophy as a young man. And now he's turned into the theistic camp. Isn't it interesting? Here's my fourth signpost. It's the signpost of values. We all have values, but they're hard to understand if there is no God. After all, you don't expect to find values knocking around in molecules. Matter does not give rise to morals. And so modern godless people are often confused about where our values fit in. We value life. But why should we if life springs ultimately from chance? We value truth. But why should we if there is no ultimate reality other than matter? We revel in love, but it's merely clinical, chemical attraction on the atheist view. We value goodness, but what is that doing in a world derived from plankton? We delight in creativity. <coughs> Strange thing to do in a world that was not created. We value communication, but the universe is silent. We appreciate beauty but there's nothing in it, since it too reflects the chaos in which our world originated. Yes, we have our values, and they do not accord well with the atheist picture of the world, sprung merely from chance, matter, and billions of years. Those are the three constituents. I do not find much basis for value judgments there. But what if there is a creator God? Then life is valuable because it is his greatest gift. Hence the infinite value of every individual. 
Truth matters because it is one aspect of God, the ultimate reality. Love and beauty are reflections of the great lover. And goodness hints at the divine source from which it comes. Best of all, we do not inhabit a silent planet. God has spoken and has revealed something of himself in the world, its design, its values and human beings. When we communicate, it is not meaningless jabbering, but a God-given ability entrusted to us by the great communicator himself. There are two possible attitudes to values. Those are the two that I've outlined. And I know which makes more sense to me. A friend of mine some years ago was the uh, Merton philosopher John Lucas. And he put it very well. He says, I want to do well, but it is impossible to do well unless there are values independent of me by which my performance can be assessed. The existence of values is a pointer to God which it is very hard to evade. It's very interesting that in uh, debates between theists and atheists, um, the atheists may do uh, pretty well on the um, origins and so on of the world, not nearly so well on the issue of values. Here's my fifth uh, indicator, the signpost of conscience. Conscience is a very remarkable pointer to God. Your conscience does not argue. It is a sort of lawmaker inside you. It acquits you or it condemns you. It's not prudential. It doesn't say, do it because it will pay you. Or, do it because you'll escape trouble that way. It just says, green, do it. Here is an astonishing categorical imperative, as philosophers call it, suggesting the moral God who put it there. Of course, it's not the voice of God, pure and simple. It's been affected and infected by all sorts of things, our environment, our rationalizations, and our disobedience. Because the more you jump on conscience, the less loudly it speaks later on. But equally certainly, conscience cannot be explained away as merely the pressure of society. People like to do that, but it's most unconvincing. It was not from any pressure of society, but in the face of the pressures of society, that Wilberforce conscientiously fought throughout his life for the liberation of slaves. Or Martin Luther King championed the cause of black people their actions were carried out in the teeth of opposition by society. Because it was right. And so it has always been with every conscientious moral advance. It's an interesting thing, I think, that despite the diversity of cultures in the world, there is remarkable agreement on the essential values to which conscience points. The general condemnation of murder and adultery, of theft and pedophilia, of hate and hijacking. There is universal agreement that peace is right and <coughs> war is wrong, that love is right and hate is not. However little we manage to carry those things out in practice, in theory, there's pretty well worldwide recognition of those facts. And it is conscience 
that points us to this difference between right and wrong and the claim that right has upon us. C.S. Lewis, who you remember, began at, at Oxford as an atheist and became a highly intelligent Christian apologist, summed it up like this. If no set of moral ideas were better than another, there would be no sense in preferring civilised morality to Nazi morality. The moment you say one lot of morals is better than another, you are in fact, fact measuring them by some ultimate standard. That's very much the point that uh, John Lucas made, uh, to which I've referred a few moments ago. What is this ultimate standard? What could it be but God? Conscience points to a moral God who's so concerned with right conduct that he has built a moral compass into each of us. It gets twisted. It needs to get remagnetized to magnetic north. It's not infallible, but it is categorical on the difference between right and wrong. Fascinating pointer. If you've got moral law, it points to a moral lawgiver. The sixth thing I bring to your consideration is the signpost of religion. Human beings are religious animals. In the 6th century BC, some philosophers in Greece poured <coughs> scorn upon religion and invited people to grow out of such superstition. Religion continued. And so it has done ever since. The Russian communists tried to abolish religion after the revolution in 1917. They failed. They tried again with violent persecution under Stalin. Some people reckon, you never really know the numbers, but something like 60 million people may have been rubbed out by Stalin. And it failed again. And now the Christian faith is making massive advances in Russia. I've just been at a conference in Austria for European evangelists. And evangelists are growing apace in Russia and in the Ukraine, uh, in the very places where for 70 years uh, they have been taught to believe that God does not exist. In China, where communism persists and persecutes, it is estimated that there are now something like 100 million Christians growing at the mean average of 25,000 a day. Phenomenal growth of Christianity in China. Sociologists in the West, some of you may remember, uh, predicted 50 years ago that religion would have withered away by the end of the 20th century. Instead, it is a major force dominating world politics. The truth is that human beings are incurably religious. We may worship God, or we may worship a God substitute. But we're going to worship something, give worship to something greater than ourselves, even if it's something very physical, like material prosperity, or something very abstract, like the idea of progress. Listen to this. There is one fact about man that has distinguished him since his first appearance on earth. It marks him as different from all other creatures. That is, he's a worshipping animal. Wherever he has existed, there are remains in some, force or some form or other of the marks of his worship. That is not a pious conclusion. 
it is an observed fact. And all through history and prehistory, when he's deprived himself of that, he's gone to pieces. Many people nowadays are going to pieces, or they find the first convenient prop to tie their instincts to. It's behind the extraordinary adulation of royalty. It's behind the mobbing of TV stars. If you don't give expression to an instinct, you've got to sublimate it or go out of your mind. That is the conclusion, not of a philosopher, not of a priest, but a novelist, Winston Graham, in The Sleeping Partner. He's right, isn't he? Those are some of the signposts which, taken together, make belief in God thoroughly credible. They point to a God who is great and skillful, skillful enough to design the courses of the nebulae and the development of an egg into caterpillar, chrysalis and butterfly. They point to a God who is the source of human personality and therefore himself not less than personal. He's the source of our values, life and language, truth, beauty and goodness, find their ultimate origin in him. He is concerned about right and wrong, hence the conscience that he has placed within us. And he wants us to know and enjoy him, to worship him and live in his company, hence the universal religious instinct of men and women throughout history and all over the world. But he still remains the unknown God, unless he chooses to disclose himself. And that, Christians believe, he has done. And he's done it in the terms that make most sense to us, the terms of a human life. And that brings me to the seventh signpost to the existence of God. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. Do you know that anonymous piece entitled One Solitary Life? He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman, he grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then, for three years, he was a wandering preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never, never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never travelled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he remains the central figure of the human race and the leader of humankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth so much as that one solitary life. The most compelling reason to believe in God is Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed that to know him 
was to know the God we cannot see. He claimed to be empowered by his heavenly fathers to represent him, to forgive sins, to accept worship, to be the final judge of humankind. He claimed that he would die for the sins of the world and would be raised to endless life after tasting death for everyone. All this is clearly before us in the pages of the Gospels. And the Gospels are an entirely new literary genre brought about by the explosive impact of Jesus on those who know him. As it were, like a volcano erupting. The lava of that volcano is this new literary form, the Gospels, unparalleled before or since. And all this is validated by the experience of multi-millions who would say, and many, many hundreds in this university and city do say, I do not merely know about Jesus, I know him. Each of those seven signposts points firmly towards God, each of them. Cumulatively, they are almost irresistible. They point to a God who is powerful, a skilled designer, the source of our values and personhood, concerned about right and wrong, who has implanted in us the instinct to reach out to him, and the one who comes to satisfy that instinct by coming to meet us and to rescue us. I want to um, close, if I may, um, by four of the reasons why I find atheism unconvincing. Very often, uh, Christians are highly defensive when atheists begin to make their position. Christians climb into their shell and they want to get behind the parapet and allow the bullets to go over their heads. I do not think that is either wise or necessary. Let me give you four reasons why I find atheism totally unconvincing. First, it gives a highly improbable account of the world. Let me be very blunt about this. If there is no God, then we have no creator. The whole universe was brought about by an accident long ago with no design or plan behind it and no purpose to be achieved. It follows that the appearance of organic life upon this planet was also an accident. The whole evolution of man was an accident. That means that things which are very important to us, like our sense of purpose, our ability to think, our moral sense, our scientific discoveries, our art and music, our convictions about truth, are all in some sense an accident the byproduct of mere movements of atoms. Dostoevsky said, not to believe in God is to be condemned to a senseless universe. And we need to take that really to heart and to rub it in. If there is no God, there is no purpose in this world. It isn't going anywhere. And the existentialists realise that. That's why I honour these people like Simone de Beauvoir and um, Sartre and Camus and Kafka and people um, after the Second World War. 
Listen to this in Sartre. Every existent being is born without reason, prolongs its life out of weakness, and dies by chance. There is somebody who looks into the abyss and sees where atheism leads. Or listen to Francis Bacon, the distinguished painter. Man now realises that he is an accident, a completely futile being who has to play out the game without reason. No wonder the atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote, Only on the foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation safely be built. So I have to tell you that uh, Bertrand Russell on his deathbed called for Sir Norman Grubb to come and pray for him. But do you find this wonderful piece of purple prose of Russell's credible? Only on the foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation safely be built. That is what atheism involves. It's a highly improbable account of the world. Here's my second complaint. It relies far too heavily on Darwinism. Darwin finally rejected the suggestion, firmly, uh, repeatedly, uh, rejected the suggestion that he was an atheist. Uh, the atheist camp today claims Darwin as, as their own. He rejected it firmly. His own views about God uh, started with wanting to be ordained, uh, and they wavered throughout his life, and they probably ended in agnosticism. But it was not the theory of evolution or natural selection that turned him in that direction. Let's be quite clear about that. It was the death of his much-loved daughter. That is what turned um, Darwin against God. However, let's think for a moment about evolution, because that is what is generally brought up in this discussion. Evolution means development with difference. You could argue that this development was entirely random and unplanned, though you would never say that of the bicycle's development from the sit-up-and-beg sort in the 19th century through the various styles of sports model and mountain bike until the present day's supermodel. Entirely random. Alternatively, you could argue that this development with difference is due to a designer, which as with the bicycle, would be the most natural conclusion. Many evolutionary biologists take the former position. Our existence is an accident. Matter, given enough time and enough luck, produced life. Though the chances of life accidentally occurring on Earth are about as likely as a typhoon blowing through a junkyard and constructing a Boeing 747. <laughs> But once given the emergence of life, natural selection is supposed to explain everything. There is no need to assume God. Man emerged by chance and has no ultimate purpose. Our number just came up with the Monte Carlo game. That is how Nobel Prize winner Jacques Monod put it. We're totally random. Our number came up in the Monte Carlo game. You're driven to that conclusion if you're an atheist. Of course, they don't want to be driven to that. But they are driven to that. There's no alternative. 
And this, of course, trashes human dignity. And it also trashes the mind that makes such claims. On such a view, there is no reason to regard our minds and their reasoning as valid. They're simply a sophisticated product of archetypal slime, of dead stardust, from which we all come. They have no independent validity. That's what we're driven to. But an increasing number of evolutionists are content to see the hand of God behind the process of evolution. God has perhaps bestowed an autonomy on nature, an ability to make itself, just as he has bestowed autonomy on human beings, the ability to have and use free will. He has woven creation from the bottom upward, with matter giving rise to life and life giving rise to humanity. The distinguished American botanist Asa Gray was a contemporary and colleague of Darwin, a convinced evolutionist and an equally convinced Christian. Gray and many scientists today picture God as the designing power behind the evolutionary change. In Darwin's own day, T.H. Huxley invented the word agnostic because he was fed up both with atheists and theists making hopelessly dogmatic statements on the basis of inadequate evidence. The world had survived without the, world, without the word agnostic for 1900, over 1850 years. So he invented it. You simply could not decide the God question on the basis of scientific method. And you cannot still. Here Stephen Jay Gould, perhaps the most distinguished of recent American evolutionists, who is not himself a Christian believer. He recalled his third grade teacher in primary school, Mrs. McKinley, who used to rap the knuckles of pupils when they said something particularly stupid. I quote from Stephen Jay Gould. To say it for all my colleagues for the umpteenth million time, science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, adjudicate God's possible superintendence of nature. We neither affirm nor deny it. We simply cannot comment on it as scientists. If some of our crowd have made untoward statements claiming that Darwinism disproves God, then I will find Mrs. McKinnery and have their knuckles wrapped, as long as she can equally treat those members of our crowd who have argued that Darwinism must be God's method of action. Wonderfully even-handed denial of the possibility of the scientific method to determine this issue. Gould adds, either half my colleagues are enormously stupid, or else the science of Darwinism is fully compatible with conventional religious beliefs and equally compatible with atheism. You cannot solve it by the natural sciences alone. That is not their property or their function. And interestingly enough, this conclusion is supported by two major surveys of religious beliefs amongst scientists. The first was undertaken in 1916, and it showed about 40% of leading scientists were active believers, 40% were atheists, and some 20% hedged their bets and remained agnostic. 
there was a second survey in 1996. And you would expect the result of that to be heavily um, moving in the direction of the atheist camp, but that is not the situation. It showed almost exactly the same proportion of beliefs amongst scientists. So let's have no more of the argument that Darwinism has made belief in God untenable. And there are scientists in this university who ought to know better, who write very firmly that you cannot be an evolutionist and you can, uh, and at the same time a Christian. Rubbish. Here is the third of my four complaints about atheism. Atheism gives a dangerously inadequate account of human beings. If you regard human beings as no more than the product of atoms in suspension, then you have a choice. You can either be very charming to them, gracious and good, as many atheistic members of senior common rooms in this university are. Charming people. Or else, you can torture them and kill them with impunity. After all, they are mere biological accidents, and you have no judgment to face after death, because there's nothing after death to face. So it's hardly surprising that atheism, which arose as the liberator of the oppressed against the corrupt power of church and monarchy in 18th century France, almost immediately turned into a reign of terror. And one strain of atheism has remained like that ever since. I do not deny that terrible atrocities have been and are being committed in the name of religion. But atheism has lost the moral high ground which it used to have to critique them. As soon as atheism ceases to be a private belief and becomes a state ideology, the liberator tends to become the oppressor. Think of Hitler, think of Lenin, think of Stalin, think of Pol Pot, think of Karavich, think of Mao Zedong. These atheist states saw atheism as the only true faith and persecuted and killed all who withstood them. Between them they slaughtered hundreds of millions of people, far more in the 20th century alone than Christianity has in the whole of its history. No longer can atheism claim to be the liberator of the oppressed. In this last century, it has given rise to the most appalling and murderous regimes in human history. Finally, I find atheism unpersuasive for a fourth reason. It seems so old-fashioned, so boring, and so socially irrelevant. Old-fashioned because atheism is married to an enlightenment or rationalistic worldview. Recently, they had a big conference in New York calling for a new enlightenment. But the enlightenment, with its rationalistic straitjacket, is the last thing we should be going back to. It does not fit our modest postmodernity, which rejects all totalizing or one-size-fits-all ideologies and welcomes diversity. But atheism clings to the old-fashioned and exploded certainties of the enlightenment. It is not content with being one view among many. It insists that it is right. It seeks to rubbish every other belief. And that does not go down well with many thoughtful people in today's society. Which rejects these meta-narratives, these grand accounts of everything. And revels in diversity and different interpretations. 
Atheism seeks to reimpose an intellectual straitjacket and shout shrilly about the infantile beliefs of those who think otherwise. That is putting the clock back. It is old-fashioned. It's also boring and socially ineffective. Atheists seem to have little that bind them together except the view that religion is the world's greatest evil and needs to be eradicated. Okay, what else do they want? They have failed to articulate an imaginative picture of a godless future that is capable of exciting people and making them want to live together and to celebrate and to serve other people. By contrast, Christianity and other great faiths are notable for the sense of, continue, of community that they foster, the good that they do in society, and the delight their followers have in the faith. I've travelled widely in Africa and Asia, and I have not found the atheists building hospitals and serving the people in far-flung recesses of the bush where Christian hospitals are to be found. Atheism is boring, like the old black-and-white television. Christianity gives you colour, as C.S. Lewis brilliantly put it, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Atheism does not enable you to see much else. It is boring, it is socially um, ineffective, and I would encourage you to steer clear of it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Questions? Yes? Quick one on the scientist thing. I, I think a, a, a count has been done of the colours of the Royal Society and their beliefs. And I'm pretty sure less than 10% of them believe in personal God. Uh, 